This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Good morning. If you can hear me in the back, can you hear me in the back? Yeah, uh, you know, okay, so so I see that's that's what I thought. You know, I was thinking, I thought, how how do how do how do people say amen and you hear it, right? So, so now, yeah, so I'm, I'm figuring, how, how do I get um, you guys to respond or know what you're saying, uh, you know, know if you're, if you're tracking with me or not? So, so here's what we'll do. Um, obviously, you have lights on your car, so you can flash your lights, as, as my friend here just did um, and back there did. And obviously, uh, the other way you can do it is honk your horn. If you want to say amen, if you want a really loud amen, say, you know, just honk your horn. So give me a, give me a, flash your lights at me for you. Would you flash your lights at me? Every, some, see, some people aren't flashing. It's just like church. This just like being inside. Yeah. Flash your lights. Okay. Now honk your horn. Just honk your horn. Amen. All right. If you love, if you love Jesus, honk your horn. All right. Okay. All right. All right. And, 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 and for my friends over to the left, you can shout amen. Amen. See, I can hear you. Or you could just wave your hand, right? If I could just wave my hand. Amen. That, that's, that's it. And, and so I want to go ahead and begin, um, you know, just to, to, be, to start us off in Acts chapter 10. But as I'm doing so, uh, as you're turning there, as you're opening your devices there, uh, let me rush to express my, my gratitude to Pastor Adam. Uh, and, and really to you for inviting me here today uh, to bring the word of God to you. Given the volatile nature of the topic we'll distra- address this morning and next week and the prevailing zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, I'm honored. I'm really honored to be worshiping with you in this um, so- somewhat awkward space, you know, because of COVID-19. But, uh, but man, we are here gathered together. As the body of Christ. And we're here uh, talking about one of those issues that the church has had a really difficult time with. By this time, by the time this is all over in the next two weeks, I hope to have added my voice to the many others who will deposit godly truth and who have deposited godly truth into the discussion on race. I hope that we'll debunk some of the myths that got us here in the first place. And perhaps I hope we'll address a few of the issues that some black conservatives provide that give ease to some evangelicals that I don't believe should be there. I believe we need to look at this in a very serious manner. And and when we do this, when we talk about this particular topic, I've seen it all kinds of ways, but I've recognized that even the most beautiful people of God have the, the most difficult time wrestling with this particular topic. And I have to say, it's really not my role to make it easy for you. It's my role to offer you truth as best I can and for you to ask God what ought to be about your life in regards to that truth. And me as well. So I want to start off and pray and then we'll begin. Gracious Father, we do thank you for the gathering that we get to do today, Lord. We thank you that even in the middle of a pandemic, 
we're still able to see your grace, see your glory, Lord. And, and thank you for bringing us then to our Savior Evangelical Free Church, Lord, where we're able to have this discussion. But where, Father, you're leading the discussion through your great word, through your great grace. And now, Father, I pray that you would use my own tongue, let the words of my mouth, and the meditations of my own heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are our strength and you are our redeemer. Let the spirit of God move us, not our own desires, our own whims, not our traditions and not the things that we've held on to for so long that have actually kept not only us apart from you, but apart from one another. Make your name great in our hearts, Lord, and give us the humility to allow you to do that. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Now, I want to tell you a story. And the story is a true story. And if you can resonate with the story afterwards, go ahead and honk your horn afterwards. Um, one day, and this is a true story, happened right here. Uh, one day, an out-of-work mime, pantomime, was visiting the Lincoln Zoo, trying to earn some money as a street performer. However, as soon as he started to draw a crowd, the zookeeper grabbed him. He dragged him into his office. And the zookeeper explained to him, though, he said, I'm bringing you into my office not to chastise you, but because the most popular attraction at the zoo, a gorilla, had suddenly died a while back. Now, the attendance at the zoo then began to fall off. And so what he, what he said is, I'm offering you a job. I'm offering you the opportunity to dress up as a gorilla until we can get another one. The mime accepted. The next morning before the crowd arrived, the mime put on a gorilla suit and he entered the cage and he discovered this was a great job. He could sleep all he wanted. He could play and make fun of the people, and he drew huge crowds. However, eventually, the crowds did begin to tire of him, and he became kind of bored just swinging on tires. He began to notice that the people were paying more attention to the lion, the real lion, in the cage next to his. He didn't want to lose the attention of his audience. He climbed into the top of the cage. He crawled across a partition. He dangled from the top of the lion's cage. And of course, this made the lion furious, but the crowd loved it. He was doing it for the crowd. At the end of the day, the zookeeper came and he gave the mime actually a, a raise even that day for being such a good attraction as a gorilla. So this went on for quite a few months over there at the Lincoln Park Zoo. The, the mime kept taunting the lion. The crowds grew larger and his salary kept going up. Until one tragic day, you probably can guess what happened. He was dangling over the aggravated and furious lion's uh, habitat while he was taunting him. Then he slipped and fell. The lion gathered himself and prepared to pounce. The mime was so scared and, and that, he, that he began to run all around the cage with the lion close behind. And what the crowd saw next was, of course, even more frightening. What happened was the mime tripped and fell and he found himself flat on his back, 
looking up at the angry lion, and he started screaming, and he started yelling uncontrollably, help me, help me. True story. And before the lion actually was too quick, because as he began to yell these things, the lion pounced on him before he could do anything else. He pounced on the actor in the gorilla suit. He slammed his large paws on the mouth of the, on the gorilla chest and, and the mouth of the gorilla, stopping him from saying what he said. And of course, you know what happened next. The lion lowered his snarling mouth. He went down toward the gorilla and he says, shut up, idiot. You're going to get us both fired. <laughs> Y'all laughing. I know y'all like that one. (laughs) There's a sense in which things aren't really what they seem. And in this case, that's, that's true. Things weren't what they seem. Here's what I know. The United States of America and the church that is in it is not always what it seems. And while it looks real, while it looks united on many fronts, that's not really the case. We especially know that when it comes to matters of race. And we especially know that even more so in the church. Today, the Sunday morning hour is still the most segregated hour of the week. I I share that with you, that humorous story with you, because I'm about to talk about racialization. And, and whenever you talk about race, it can get pretty scary. And as this is your first time, maybe for some of you meeting me, some of you met me last time, uh, it might seem at times or look at times like I'm biting your head off. But I'm really one of you, like the lion was one of the gorilla. And my heart is not to guilt anyone But as I sometimes listen to discussions on race among Christians, I'm often left with the thought that we tend to keep the discussion benign for palatability's sake so that people can accept the story, so that people can accept the the, the scenario. And sometimes we don't deal with the few hard items that might actually help us move forward if we could actually talk through them together. And secondly, I share this story with you because I want you to know That up front, I'm speaking to a particular group in the American church. A particular group that this group has more opportunity to shape the narrative on the nation's story on race than any other group. That group in particular is white evangelicals. We need to look at what white evangelicals can bring to the table in the matter of race. The big question for many of us today is why hasn't the church been able to live in that space, that unity space that Jesus called for in John chapter 17? Why is the Sunday morning hour still the most segregated hour of the week, even amongst Christians who say we believe in the same God? And there are other questions that are connected to that, like Why do racial atrocities continue to threaten the peaceful democracy of these yet-to-be United States? Why do police officers and black and brown communities 
have so much seeming animosity toward one another? And the typical answer that if you're a Christian that you love to hear, and sometimes you might give this answer yourself as well, we don't know, but we know that it will only be God to unify us. Now, I have a different view on that. I don't think it's just God unifying of us. I think the scriptures give us something different in that area. But I want to answer that question looking at Peter's life in Acts chapter 10. The truth is the New Testament church struggled with a similar plight. But in the passage, we see that God was working to sanctify Peter, to make him holy, to make him an agent of unity across ethnic and what we would today recognize as racial lines. This is what God wants to do with us. God wants to sanctify the church and use it as his vessel to draw people to him and get people safely home in him. And while the church does that in numerous ways already, I mean, we see the good the church is doing all across the world. We also recognize that the one way that we have been sorely negligent to do it and in fact have been proponents of the of the, the negativity of have been have been proponents of the the harshness of the, the the sin of we've been a part of that. In particular, we say this about white evangelicals. White evangelicals have been a part of this for the years, the hundreds of years that this country has had the church in it. We recognize that white evangelicals for, for, for many years now had the opportunity to change what is racially divergent from God, what is racially deviant, and what is racially sinful, but have not taken the opportunity to do so. And so, my brothers and sisters, I'm not here to bash you. I'm here to tell you a truth that over the next two weeks, I hope we can cover some ground in this. And if we can, if you ask me the questions, when you ask me questions later, I'm going to do my best to answer. I'm not the expert here. There are no experts in this matter, but there are some ways that I believe that if you would hear the voices that cry out for this matter, that you can be a part of change. You can be an agent of change. Now, I want to offer you some ways that we do this from Acts chapter 10 but I want you to consider what this means for your life. And then over the next, the, the next, this, uh, this day and the next couple of days, or the next Sunday rather, we'll answer some questions in regards to how the church can be a more, a more gracious partner toward God's unity. Let's, let's focus on that. I'm going to read the whole, nearly the whole passage. I tend to like to do that because I want you to get the story. And I realize that takes it away from my time. I only have a little bit of time here. But we'll do what we have to do in the time that we, we have. And so hear the story. Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 9, we look at Peter who has a vision. And the Bible says the next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing the food, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened up and an object like a great sheet abound, abound, excuse me, at the four corners, descending to let him, to, excuse me, descending to him and let him down to the earth. In, in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, 
creeping things and the birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter says, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what the vision had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made an inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And, and, and they called and they asked whether Simon, who Peter was staying with, Simon the Tanner, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear the words from you. Then he invited them and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. They went back to the person who had sent them, Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was awaiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I myself also am a man. And he talked with him and he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go with a person of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, why did you send for me? So Cornelius tells him the story of why he sent for them. God had met Cornelius and told him about Peter. And that was the story. So he immediately sent for Peter and gathered his people so that Peter could share the message. Verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and who works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after baptism, which John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with Holy Spirit and, and with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were possessed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these which he did in both the land of the Jews and, and, and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up the third day <clears throat> and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us, preach to the people, testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead to him. All the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard. Verse 46. 
Then Peter answered, verse 47, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now, for the time that is ours, I want to just talk from the subject, he's sanctifying me. He's sanctifying me because what we see in Peter's life here was a process where sanctification was taking place. You won't see that word in the passage, but what we know is Peter was changed. And that's the process that God uses for you and I as believers. He changes us. He sanctifies us. He makes us more holy. He makes us more like him than we were like ourselves. That's what the whole scripture is about. All of scripture is about you and I becoming more like God. That's what Ephesians 5.1 says, right? Paul says, be imitators of Christ. That's, that's what Matt, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, I want you to be holy like I am holy. The, the, the image of God that lives within us cries to get out, reach out of us, not in those sinful ways that we use, but in ways that would help us to be seen as God is seen, to look like God. And I would tell you this, that the church doesn't always look like God in particular with matters of race. I, I'm, I'm recalling uh, a young lady sitting streams of tears running down her face. She was intelligent. She was attractive. She was youthful, still in her teens, an ambitious college student. On top of all of that, she, she was a God-fearing Christian woman. I mean, she loved Jesus. But she had just revealed something about the darkness of her heart. I had uh, been the campus minister at an, a historically black college and university, and I took my students to a leadership retreat, several of them. And this young lady was among them. And we had some people in our midst, uh, in, our, in, our, in our circles in the, in the state, who were generous enough to allow students to stay at their home during this conference. And while we sat in their living room discussing the conference, this young lady began to weep. And she wept because the people who had allowed her to stay in the home, when she had been allowed to stay in that home, she looked at these people and she had made preconceived notions in their mind about them. The reason why is because they were white and they were wealthy. And she learned that day that just because a person is white and wealthy doesn't mean they have to be racist. Up until that point, her view of what it meant to experience white persons meant that they must have been racist. And the Holy Spirit did something in her heart that day. And in, and in fact, indeed, we all got to have a conversation about that in that moment. And that young couple who allowed us to live in their house, they also learned from how they had been perceived by the community around them, a different community, all of us believing in the Lord Jesus. But we see each other differently. And this young lady was sanctified. She was changed on that day. What happened to this young teen woman is not much different than what happens to many older or more mature believers and what happened to the Apostle Peters. She believed what she had been taught about people and she let it impact how she thought about them. 
And God had to help her overcome her dark prejudice. But sadly, what also happened to this young woman and to Peter seems not to have happened to the overwhelming majority of Christians in the United States when it comes to church diversity. See, while she and the Apostle Peter found deliverance through the Holy Spirit and sanctification, many in the church in the United States continue to remain captured by our prejudices, in particular our racial prejudices. Therefore, our churches remain segregated. And the main message today is that God wants to sanctify us in the same way that he did with this young woman and with the apostle Peter so that through us, others might receive the message of Jesus Christ. I I receive that. Amen. Now, in this passage today, you won't find the word sanctification. You'll see, though, many specific commands that we should follow. In fact, The story we just read in Acts chapter 10 actually would seem to be a rejoicing over the story of Cornelius and his family who were converted to Jesus. And that's true. But in reality, this story is about a secondary conversion of the Apostle Peter. A secondary conversion that hopefully you and I will experience. In fact, the truth of the matter is when the Holy Spirit lives in you, there is the initial conversion of of coming to the Lord Jesus. And we are saved and we will enter the gates of heaven. We We will walk with Jesus forever. But on this earth, there have to be many secondary conversions and tertiary conversions so that you and I might continue to change. And that happens because the spirit of God lives inside of us and he continues to change us. Now, I'm telling you that there was a secondary conversion. And it's important that you recognize that there was this because I say this because we know that by the time that Peter was firmly established in the life of Christ, Peter had been a successful Christian. By this time, by the time Peter meets Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, Peter had already been waiting for the Messiah. We see it in John chapter 1 and 41. He had walked with Jesus for several years. We see at least see that in Matthew chapter 4 verse 19. He had walked on water with Jesus. Matthew chapter 14. Peter had already been sent out with the 70 disciples and people were saved under Peter. Luke chapter 10. He had been filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues. And Acts chapter two, he put his hands on people and they were healed. We see that in Acts chapter three. He even raised dead people to life. We see that in the prior chapter. Peter was a Christian folk. He would soon see angels. And now he was living with Simon the Tanner. That even was a a, a, a significant step in his sanctification. He was living with Simon the Tanner, showing that God was now working in his life to connect him with people who he wouldn't normally care to connect with. Yet we find that after all of this had taken place in Peter's life, he still struggled with what we would today call racism. He still struggled with staying away from people who were not Jews. The truth that Peter demonstrates for us is that even spiritually mature, giant Christians can have gross blind spots of sin in their daily lives with God. 
You can have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You can go to church every Sunday. You can be a giver to that church. You can be a giver to other groups, but you can still have gross blind spots in your life. And I want to tell you tonight, amen, I want to tell you today that, that, that the church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America is indicative of that truth. And we need to be mindful that you and I can be people who change. You and I can be agents of reconciliation. But more than that, because reconciliation should not be the goal, we need to be agents of restoration. Let me, let me explain that. I'm going to unpack that just a, 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 a smidgen here. Just to say that I don't believe that racial reconciliation gets us to where we need to be with one another. The Bible doesn't really mention racial reconciliation. And when the scriptures speak of reconciliation in the scriptures, it, it's talking about reconciliation between God and you. Me and God, not you and I. In, in fact, when, it, when Ephesians, in chapter 5, when Ephesians, uh, when Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 5 and he says, you are ministers of reconciliation, he did not mean the way we use it today. He did not mean that we're ministers of reconciling a person to a person to a person. Go read the text. The text is specific to point out that the ministry of reconciliation that we're supposed to have is the ministry of reconciliation from one man to God, from another person to God. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And the assumption is that if we are reconciled with God, then we'll automatically reconcile with others. Yet, sadly, that's not been the case in the United States of America. It has not been true. The, what, what is called the miracle motif has not been true. The miracle motif says, if I accept Jesus Christ, then my, I begin, I, 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 everything falls in the line for me. That has not been true in the matters of race, especially in white evangelicalism. And my brothers and my sisters, I'm telling you today, it's time to change. I'm telling you today that if you choose not to change on this, you need to hear it. The United States is hanging in the balance. You need to hear it. The church of Jesus Christ, especially is hanging in the balance. You ask yourself as to why things are the way they are right now. Why is there rioting and looting? Yet we don't recognize the, the, the things that cause the propellers of those riots and lootings. You don't, you don't recognize the pain that even the white evangelical congregations of Jesus have stood alongside with and have not spoken against. And because you don't recognize that, we see blood in the streets. And I'm here to tell you today, we must change. If we change, there's a promise given to us. If we do this well, there's a promise that Jesus gives us in John chapter 17. What is that promise? Jesus made this promise. He said, if they are one, Lord, the world will know that you have sent me. If they are one, Lord, the world will believe that you have sent me. And if they are one, Lord, the world will understand that they are loved by the Father in the same way that I'm loved by the Father. That's what Jesus prays. His last prayer, the longest prayer in the New Testament, before he leaves, before he leaves to sit on the throne. It's the last thing he told us. He said, if they can be one, 
if they can be unified, the world then will know. We, we have a bunch of evangelistic programs. We have all kinds of things that we think will minister to people. And Jesus says, well, really, if you just be unified, I can do this. And, 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 and I want you to know today uh, uh, that, 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 that you and I have opportunity to be agents of change. You have opportunity in this particular issue, this issue of race and ethnicity in the United States, you can be an agent of change. The problem with Peter here is he should have known better. Peter should have known better than to think of Cornelius a certain way. Before, before, before he got to talk to Cornelius, he should have been knowing uh, something different. It, it should have been that Peter, obviously because of the things I just shared with you, all these spiritual uh, journeys that Peter had been on and he had done them victoriously, he should have known better. For not only did he walk with God and, and that he's seen the living Jesus, as he attests to in verse 39, but Peter was there when Jesus did offer his final prayer to the Father. Peter was there uh, before going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter heard Jesus in John chapter 17 pray to the Father. He heard that Jesus wanted the heavenly glory that he had before the foundation of the world to be restored to him. He heard that Jesus wanted the Father to sanctify the disciples in John chapter 17. Peter heard that Jesus wanted unity among the disciples so that the world could know and believe that Jesus was sent by the Father and that the Father loves the world. But more importantly, Peter heard in Jesus' prayer that Jesus had equipped the church to succeed with something that God had up to this point in history had refused to share with anyone. For in John chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus says to the Father, the glory which you've given to me, I have given to them. Did, did you hear that? The glory that God has, that, 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 he, that he handed to Jesus, Jesus gave to us. I don't want you to miss this. Uh, that might not mean much to you unless you look and recognize that the glory of God in the Hebraic view of glory had to do with the weight, the gravitas of how seriously people take God. So when God says, I have glory, it's how seriously people take him. And he gave that to Jesus because he wanted to be taken more seriously. And, and, and that's and, and what God says about his glory in Isaiah 42 and 8. In Isaiah 48 and 11, he says this about his glory. He says, my glory, I will not share with another. Now, church, please don't miss this. God, the father said that he will not be sharing his glory with another. But here we find that Jesus Christ has been given the glory. And now Jesus hands the glory that God gave him, that God said he wouldn't share, to the church. Now, either Jesus is being disobedient and rebellious or irresponsible 
or he believes something about the church that is you and myself that we have not yet grasped ourselves. Jesus has given the church the glory of God. And he says that the reason he gave the church the glory of God is so that the church might be one. That's what he says in verse 22 of John chapter 17. Jesus gave the, the, the somebody might say it like this, the, the scholarly might say it like this. He gave the incommunicable attribute of glory to the, 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 the people. God doesn't share his incommunicable attributes. But this one he did. You won't find, I don't see that. I don't see anybody talking about that, but it's right there in Scripture. That God gave us glory to be one, yet we've not been one. And so it is no longer, this is no longer time to say, yeah, we don't know enough. No more, no more. Well, we don't, we don't understand why this is happening or that is happening. Find out. Because the glory of God, the gravitas of how God is seen rests in the church. The glory of God and how God is seen rests in the church. And you and I have opportunity to be agents of that change. Now, when we... When we see this, we, we look at Peter's story and we can see that God's sanctifying power and purpose is causing Peter to become the person God wants him to become so that Peter might play a role in helping others become who God wants them to be. You see, if you and I can get unity right, we recognize that Jesus seems to hold unity above nearly every other aspect of the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul recognizes this. And so we look at this and we recognize that the Apostle Paul speaks of unity on many fronts. And we don't have time to do it today. And we'll finish the message next week. But what I want you to understand is that unity is one of the highest, if not the highest goal in the New Testament. New Testament. Now, I, knew, I know some of you guys would say, no, it's doctrine. No, it's unity. When Jesus gets ready to leave. He does not do what Paul does. And, and this is not, a, this is not a, a, a clash of Paul and Jesus. Paul was right to focus on doctrine to help us understand, but it's unity. Unity above racial difficulties. And it's been that disunity that has caused a many people to look at the church and say, why on earth would I join that? They can't even get along with one another. And we especially see this in racial terms. In fact, we see this where I, I have many friends who say, enough friends to say, to have said, you know, I, I just, um, I'm certainly when it comes to black and white in the United States, and there are many more ethnic issues now beyond the black and white issue, uh, but it still lingers. But I have many friends who say, you know, I just, I just can't deal with the white church anymore. They say, they say I'm going back to what I, 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 I know, Right? They realize that there's not supposed to be a black church and a white church, but they recognize that the more they try and step inside the spaces of well-to-do, especially white congregations or, or traditionally white congregations, they find it a very difficult thing to see the gospel lived out. Not, not, not that the church is not living the gospel out sometimes uh, uh, with the people out there, 
But when the people of God sometimes gather, the gospel is maligned because it's hard for people who believe in the same God to be in the same space. Now, I want you to ask yourself, ask yourself over the course of the week, and we'll join it next week. We're going to join this passage next week, and then we're going to, and we're going to dig into what Peter, what changed Peter. But you need to ask yourself, why does my church look altogether like people like me? Why does my community, the one I live in, look like people like me? Look, look like people, most of the people are like me. Maybe they're one or two. And why, if someone does move in, why would I move out? Right. Ask yourself those real questions that Christians should be asking themselves, because when you ask yourself those hard questions, you'll come to a place where if you dig deep enough, you'll recognize that there's been something broken about humanity. Something broken that started about 500 years ago, especially race is not a an old thing. It's a new thing in human history. Racism is new in human history. Uh, even even here, why, what I call racism is not really racism. It's ethnocentrism. There were ethnic groups, but race was not a reason why people divided. And I want you to ask yourself some of the questions about race and why people are divided. I'll explain more about that later. But I need you to understand that if you and I can ask the questions, if you and I can get it together, if you and I can come to a place where we do understand why my group thinks a, a one way and your group thinks another, and where I'm able to be empathetic about the daily life experiences that you have. If you can really understand that, and I can learn to understand you, we would move, trek together toward that unity that Jesus spoke of, and we wouldn't have to worry about evangelistic programs. The unity that Jesus said, Jesus himself said, he made a promise. He says, man, if they could do it, if they could do it, people would know and believe that Jesus has been sent by God. Let me ask you, can I get an amen? Is that what you want? That's what you want, right? Amen. That's what we want. We want people to know the name of Jesus. And when they know the name, not to think of that name with sickness, with sadness, with oppressive natures, with, with, uh, with oppression about the name. We can do this. Next week, I want to talk to you about how. And, and, and I want to pray with you right now because I know we're going to go a bit deeper in some of these areas. And it, and it can be difficult. Anytime I've, I've talked about race, when you really dig deep, it, it becomes something that's not, not, as much, uh, not as much that we can't agree that the scriptures say a certain thing. But the way we live those out. The Christians the United, in, in, the, in the United States especially have real difficulty. And we're going to come together on this uh, because God has work to do and he wants to do it through us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that as you prepare us to hear the rest of this passage over the course of this week, you give us clear understanding of, of yes, Lord, the exegetical uh, underpinnings of Peter and how he uh, changed, Lord, but, but transform us. Transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds so that we may be able to prove the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay right here. Okay. Yeah. Hey, brother, I'm going to stand. I understand that online you can't see me. I was just going to keep our... Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe you step, step over that yeah. way a little bit. Yeah, perfect. 
and uh, I'll be right here. Sorry, hey, thanks for sticking it out in the rain. Of course, this was more than, than, we, uh, than we wanted or hoped for or saw coming, but thanks for sticking it out. Brother, thank you so much for that prophetic word. I'm so glad. Mm -hmm. we'll just, it's all weird to keep our distance and stand is, as far yeah, apart. It but is, yeah. um, I'm just going to, just in the interest of time, get right into some questions. Go for it. We had some really, really terrific questions come in. I want you to know, um, I'm, just, I, I'm getting them on my iPad, and so is Pastor Tim. Uh, we had so many come in, I just can't, I'm not going to track anymore right now. I've got, I've got enough for this time right now. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you um, are texting one right now, please continue to text it in. We'll get to them next week and, excuse me, and things like that. Um, but let's start off with this one. Let's just start off with, this is a sensitive topic. How can I avoid unintentionally offending people as we talk about a sensitive topic? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, you know, the best answer that I've, <clears throat> I've come up with over at least, you know, I've been thinking on these thoughts for probably at least 12 years now. And, and when I recognize this, um, that this topic comes up, I think I've come up with the best answer for that. Uh, you can write, you can probably pull it, pull your papers out or put it on your devices, write this down. I think that when it comes to not offending people, Thanks, according man. to this topic, you can't, you, you're going to offend somebody. That's a, that's a hard truth. But, but if you, if you seek with a good heart to be forgiving yourself, when a person responds to you in a way that you didn't like, because they were offended by you and you go the extra mile as Jesus calls us to with them, then I, and you continue to press into learning about why someone would be offended. I think in that, not only will you learn how not to offend, but you will become an advocate, an advocate for people uh, who think differently from you, especially in this topic of race. It's, I've, I've seen it, and it's very hard not to offend. The times where I've seen people not be offended are those times where I spoke to you about it in the sermon, where I'm thinking, well, you know, it almost seems like that conversation is quite benign. Like you can have that conversation and people walk away feeling good, but it didn't do anything for what should change a person's heart. That's my thought on that. Very good. Thank you. Um, many of us have been taught to not focus on race. Hmm. And I'll just ask this in a really open-ended way. Is that a helpful way of approaching these topics? And, and the, the spirit of the question is, for many years people said, you know, the most helpful way is don't concentrate on race. Don't think about race. Just treat everybody the same. Is, is that... A help, is that the most helpful way that you've seen people grow in this, in this way? So we call that, of course, the, the, the technical term for that is color blindness, right? And, and color blindness, we would, we would love to use color blindness as a, a way that uh, you and I are to get along and to see equity work out in the United States and in the church. The challenge is, that even if people say that they don't uh, see color, they, they, they tend to act in ways that tend to, to demonstrate that they see color. And, and so, so, so I would say that colorblindness is not helpful. Uh, we see that, for example, Dr. King mentioned he wanted a, he, he didn't call it that, but he wanted a colorblind society where, where his little black, the, that little black boys and little uh, black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls. And that is true. We want that to be the case. But what we don't want is that, that when the little black boys and little black girls uh, join, uh, who join hands separate the hands from the little white boys and white girls and go to their different homes, 
that life doesn't treat them so different. And colorblindness is not helpful toward that. Colorblindness, in fact, exacerbates that. It causes people to do that. Now, it causes people to not, uh, not see not only the color, but you don't see the life experiences that a person of a different color, the black or brown person's experience, uh, through experiences that you might experience. So, so when, when you think about colorblindness and you, and you want people to be treated the same, I'm here to tell you it's not true that when my son is engaged with law enforcement that he's going to experience the same thing as your son. It's just not the case. So colorblindness is less helpful than we would like it to be. You know, kind of what I, what I hear you saying is colorblindness is a great idea, but it's in a lot of ways it's like it's pretending that a problem doesn't exist. And perhaps a, a, perhaps a better way of approaching that is to say there is, we do have an issue. Let's just, let's just address it out in the open. That way we can really have the right conversation. Yeah, well, and the other thing about colorblindness that, that it does is it negates who God made me to be. God made me, and I'm a black man, what we call a black man. God made you as a white man. I was sitting and one of my friends said to me one day, uh, older, he's an older white gentleman. He said, Steve, I don't even see you as a black man. This was in Arkansas where I lived and in the South. And, and this, this, this beautiful white guy, but, but from my vantage point, racist. He was a friend, but he was racist. He says, I don't even see you as a, a black man. I said, no, you need to see me as a black man. Uh, God made me that way. And he made me that way for a reason. And he made you that way for a reason. And so he understood some, but not quite, because some of the socialized ways that we've been living in our society, yeah. didn't, it, was, it was hard to help him see that. Excellent. You know, uh, well, this is a question that I think we had four or five different versions of, so I'm just going to kind of pick one. And it's a, a question that I'm sure you get a lot. How can I personally, or how can we as a church, be a part of growing in this uh, in, in this way, in this process mm -hmm. of sanctification, what are things that individuals can do? What are things that churches can do? And I'm, that's a very generalized way of asking the same question yeah. that a number of people had. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's a, it's a really good question, the what do I do question. And that question has so many different fronts. I do, I do hope next, next week that I'll be able to bring in some specifics of what this, but let me give you, a, 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 because it's so, it's the, the, the question is so uh, diffuse. There, there are many ways that you can. I just want to give you a few. Uh, as an individual, it, it would be helpful for you to educate yourselves. We educate ourselves on the history of race in the United States. The specific history of how black Americans, black or African Americans were treated. The specific history of how law when we talk about equity and, 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 and wanting everybody to be equal, the specific generation after generation after generation, legal separation of how one group was treated versus another group. And, 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 if, and if you learn, if you just learn that, I think it's okay that you'd be able, I think you'd come to the, 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 the conclusion that, wow, there really is a huge problem here. And some of you would even come to the conclusion, as, as uh, they did in Asheville, North Carolina, we maybe, maybe we do owe reparations. Maybe we do. Because there have been some egregious things that this nation has done. That the church, we would like to say, has been helpful to eradicate, but actually the church has, has, has been the, the pushers of. And so, so I would say that one thing is educate yourself. The other thing is see the scriptures, open, open, broaden your, your, your mind to see the scriptures, not in just the spiritual ways that we've been trained to see them. That's not helpful. 
there's some real life experiences that have, I just showed you a real life experience of an apostle of Jesus Christ who was what we would today recognize as racist. When have you heard that Peter was racist? We should say that. We should say that Peter had problems so much so that another apostle checked him on it in front of everybody. Galatians chapter 2, right? Paul checks Peter on that. But we never say that. But not only do we have a false history then of, of, of the scriptures, we have a false history of, of the church in the United States. And we like to talk about how well, how, how everybody needs the Lord Jesus, but we're not demonstrating how the Lord Jesus is really um, profitable for communities of color, right? If you're, if you're a white Christian, you should recognize that I especially point to you because you have the ability and the, the power more than any of the Christian in the United States because you have the social power to make change. And, 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 and I want you to know, um, so educate yourselves. I'll just stay on track. Educate yourselves. Um, see with open eyes a dip, the, the way the script. Let me, you can see with open eyes how the scriptures actually impact other groups, not just your own. See that. Um, I would say, obviously, there, there's the, the things that churches already do. We feed the hungry. We, um, we, we clothe people. But I would say you need to think more systemically and not just individually. That if you think more systemically, you'd recognize that the, the problems that the churches, that the, excuse me, that the groups in this nation have are, and that the church can help with are not those that simply come from me being your friend. But if you, if you think systemically, you, you're going to have to think a, a larger way of, in a, in a, in a more grand way of, of how I'm supposed to change not just myself, not just my church, but how I'm supposed to change the, the system that's impacting people of color in this nation that the church can be. Uh, I'll give you one example, one, one system that needs that, that, that's really hard to change, the system of residential uh, communities, right? The, the fact that you live in your community and most of the people in your community are probably like you didn't happen by chance. It did happen because of racially motivated people. And, 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 and many of them were Christian. Christian schools and, 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 com and communities where certain people aren't allowed. Well, that, that happened because of racism and the church has been a party to it rather than averse to it. Uh, let me get, let me just ask a, a couple more this week, and we've got plenty to save for yep, next week. So many good ones. This is a hot button one, and I'd love to hear, brother. I'd love to hear your response. Why might some people be offended by the response? All lives matter, and I think you probably knew this. So you smiled a little bit. You kind of knew this one. This one might have been coming. When 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 others are proclaiming Black Lives Matter, why might others be? Why might some be offended when they say, "Well, all lives matter"? Yeah, you know. It's such, a, it's, such a, it's such a strange response. But first of all, I only hear that response, only, only, when we're talking about black lives who've been lost. So it feels like deflection, and it, and it feels disingenuous that you really do care about all lives even. But what we know certainly, and I've never heard a person say this in response, you know what, I think you're right, black lives do matter. Well, if all lives matter, and I say black lives matter, you should have no problem with that. Because my black life, my son's black life, my wife's black life, and my daughter's black life, it matters, right? Doesn't it matter? 
you would shake your head yes, right? You should have no problem with it. But, but when you say all lives matter to the response, to respond to black lives matter, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like if your mother died and you say, man, my mother passed away. Yeah, man, but you know all moms pass away. Is that the response you want? You want somebody to generalize your particular situation? Well, I'm, I'm here to say that black Americans have a particular plight that makes them say, hey, black lives matter. Those people aren't painting those things on the street just because they want to be black and proud. They're painting those things on the street because they're trying to say, see it. See that black lives matter. Don't tell me all lives matter and then be okay with the, the plight that, that this country has laid upon black Americans. You can't do that. A, 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 woman, a woman's cat died the uh, other week. I didn't say to her, eh, cats die. Cats, you know, that's what happens with pets. They die. No, it was a, it was a cat, and, and it was, but it was her, close to her. Now, and so I'll stop right there. Don't, don't, don't minimize people's experiences uh, by generalizing it as a deflection. It's not even that you care about all lives. You just do it to deflect from the fact that black lives matter. You ought to consider, why is it that I'm so averse to black life mattering? That's what you should consider. Ask that question. I think just one, um, just one to close. Um, well, let me, I, I'm going to go with two more. The, one, the, the last one's, I think, pretty simple and pretty easy. How would you respond to a person who does not believe they are personally racist or they're, they're not struggling with racism? So this is really not a problem that they are going to engage in or should be concerned with. They're not personally racist, so this isn't really their, their sure. issue. This is not sure. an issue for them. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say it a couple of ways. First of all, racism in it, in really pro probably is less... It, there are some personal aspects to race, racism, and uh, of course we engage those aspects. But racism is a much larger, uh, it's, it's a systemic thing that, that Americans aren't so keen on um, thinking about. We like to think individually, but we, we, we need to think broader. And, um, and the fact that, that we would assume that uh, it, it's, it may be true that you're not racist. I get that. Uh, you, you would say, maybe my grand, great-grandfather was racist, but I'm not. Uh, maybe I didn't do the things that, that, um, that they did back then. Um, I, I think differently, and maybe you do. Uh, there's a couple of things. I think the scriptures give us example that when people like us sometimes do things, maybe we need to be the ones, even if we haven't done it, to speak up on their behalf and say, you know what, I'm very sorry, please forgive that that happened, and, uh, and, and then what can I do to help? We see that with Daniel. We see that with Isaiah, right? We see that with people who say, I'm repenting. They, Daniel didn't do anything. Isaiah didn't personally do anything, but he says, Lord, help us. They, they say, Lord, help us, right? And I, and I recognize that with white uh, Americans who, who say, I, I didn't do that, and I'm not racist. So maybe you consider should consider the history and at least empathize to say, you know what? That was sinful. That was wrong. But now, what do I do from that? Because you say, well, I don't have anything to do with that. Well, um, I, I like to think of it like this. Whether or not you are racist, you do contribute to what I like to call a racialized society. America is a racialized society. Every, almost 
everything we do is in one way, shape, or form uh, uh, a result uh, of race, of how race works. And, and racialization is just that. It's just how race works. And even if you're not racist, you, you, you can contribute to a racialized society. Do you do it negatively or positively? Now, if, you, if someone walks into your company and you decide that, man, you know, my company will do much better if we hire this white person or, uh, versus this Latino or this African-American person, uh, if their credentials are the same or if their credentials, if they, if they don't quite have the credentials, then, then you've just contributed negatively to a racial, racialized society and you've empowered racism to continue. If, if, when, if when somebody moves into your community and they're not the color that you are, and you say, well, you know, my, 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 housing, uh, my, my, my housing value is going to go down, and you move without, without addressing the system of what the banks do to people in, the, in those communi in, in communities where people of color gather, then you've contributed to a racialized society. White flight can be considered in some ways a sin. Don't contribute to a racialized society and then not be one to call, wanted to be called a racist. So you may not be personally racist, but you may contribute to those things that people in those communities, different communities from you, experience. You may contribute to the negative things that people in those communities that are different from yours um, live. Awesome. Thank you. Just one, one last quick question. Um, you mentioned educating ourselves. Could you just few books, maybe a few leaders on social media that we could follow or look into what, what where, sure. where do we start? Educating? You know, um, I, I, I always recommend this one book to every white evangelical divided by faith, the evangelical problem of race in America. Now, when I say evangelical, I'm talking about those people who believe in the Lord Jesus, who believe that the message of Jesus should be shared, um, and, and who believe the Bible is the word of God. And, 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 and sometimes evangelicals differ on this, but many of those who believe in the active nature that evangelicals ought to take, it's changed over the years. Evangelicals used to say, let's be separate, and they were more fundamental. Now we're more like, let's, let's engage. Either way, you should read that book and, and consider how white evangelicals have come to think the way they have come to think. That's one book. It's by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Um, another book I always like to uh, I just throw in because I think it's, it's really helpful is a book called The Elusive Dream by uh, a woman named Corey Edwards. And, and, her, uh, and the Dr. Edwards, she points out that even when you have diversity, diversity in many of our, of our churches is only really deemed, uh, or excuse me, a multi-ethnic church or, or congregations that are diverse are only really deemed uh, viable and good places to be for as much as they're viable and good places to be for white people. That is, if white persons are happy at those places, then that place can be a successful place. But when it's deemed that way, when other groups may speak into how this place can be more helpful, those churches don't tend to be the most helpful to the body of Christ. That's another book you might consider. Uh, the Color of Compromise recently came out, I think a year now, or yeah, a good. year and a half now. Uh, you know, talks about the church's involvement with race and racism, um, how the church was it, it intentionally involved. I mean, our, 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 the big names, right? The Jonathan Edwards. I'm, I, you know, I'm not talking about uh, when we think about the church being involved in racism. It's, it's, not, it's not just, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the leaders of the evangelical churches. It's the leaders 
of, of the people who were preaching the gospel. Right here in this city of Chicago, we see it. And just go look at your history and that. The Color of Compromise was one of them. That's, I'll stop right there. W wonderful. Hey, can we, um, can we just express our appreciation through applause and other means uh, for Stephen to come up? Thank you. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.